Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Brown. You know him as the former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst. Max, how was your bye week? It was weird. It was weird not having uh, Saturday responsibilities. But, uh, no, it's good to be back in uh, a, a, a big, huge game, like right after bye week. Bye week came at a good time, but, uh, no, it's good to be back. Definitely came at a good time for the Trojans, the, the banged up Trojans, but also came at a good time for for the banged up media crew. I I've <laughs> uh, I felt like an old man. I, I just I kept falling asleep every chance I got. I just it was so nice to have downtime and be able to catch my breath after a frenetic uh, couple months with fall camp and the start of the season. So I'm recharged. Um, hopefully you are too, because we got some fun topics today. You know, normally. On uh, the Tuesday pod, we are breaking down the previous game and getting into the nitty-gritty and the X's and O's and what went right or what went wrong. Um, no need for that this week, as as the aforementioned bye week happened. But there's a lot to discuss because this team is at kind of a pivotal, not going to say crossroads, but just it's a very pivotal week. Uh, I think what happens in this in this game at Notre Dame, at number 9 slash 10 Notre Dame, will shape a lot of what follows, will definitely shape the narrative and the noise around the program, as Clay Helton calls it. So plenty to dive into. But what we're going to do first is take stock. We're going to take stock of where USC is after five games. We know they're three and two. We know how how they got there, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows. But we're going to Pick Max's brain here, and I'll offer my thoughts, too, on who we think have been the five best players in this USC team so far and who are the five that, that we think need to pick it up for this team to finish strong. And let's just kind of dive right in, Max. Um, I don't know if, if the list came obvious to you or if you had to put some thought into it. I posted mine on the website Monday on Trojansports.com and kind of explained my reasoning, but I definitely went back and forth on a few. I'm going to have you start, though. How would you how would you rattle off your your five most valuable or best Trojans so far? Oh yeah, I didn't know you uh, put out a list. I would have used that as a reference. Um, I know I didn't, I didn't. I couldn't tell you that. Yeah, cheat sheet. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I tried to be um, when I made this list. I tried to not do position groups. Like I, I had to do one single name. Um, that those, those were the rules. Uh, but in no particular order. Um, the five names that I think in terms of like strong performers, when I think of like, all right, where, where's SC right now? What do they got working well? Who's cooking? I go Talanoa Hufunga uh, is the first name. And I don't know if you want, like, I'll just say the names and then we can go in uh, name by name afterwards. But Talanoa Hufunga, Michael Pittman, uh, Elijah Griffin, I think is doing great things. Uh, I got uh, Elijah Vera Tucker. And uh, the fifth name, this is probably the hardest one because I had to pick one, but I'm actually going to go with uh, Marlon Tuipolotu. Those five names, I think, uh, when you talk about what SC's doing well, those five names are at the top of the list. Wow. We are, we are pretty similar, not in terms of ranking, but in terms of the actual list. I swear I did not look um, at your list. I did not even know that existed. So, Yeah, no, no, I know that. I, I, that's awesome. I'll tell you what I did. I, I did. I, I cheated at one spot, and, and and you're gonna find out here in a second. And then I had an honorable mention just because I had him on the five, and then took him off. But it's one of your guys. So so my five, Michael Pittman. I I think he's been playing at an All American level, and we'll we'll debate these further. 
Yeah. But I, I just thought he's been just the, the most uh, impressive overall player. Number two, I cheated. I went Marlon Tuipolotu and Jay Tufeli as a tandem. I just I, I like how they work off each other. I like what they do inside, and and uh, you know USC hasn't fully leveraged what they do inside because they're they're allowing teams to adjust and take advantage of the edges. Um, but I think they've been consistently solid week in and week out. Number three, Elijah Griffin um, has solidified one of the biggest question marks during the season. That Stanford performance was eye-opening as to his instincts and, and awareness. Really like him. Four, I have Talano Hufanga. And if you read what I have on Trojansports.com, I even say, this is going to sound non-sequitur, but I think Talano Hufanga's going to be the defensive MVP of this team when it's all said and done. Yep. I just think maybe he – he didn't come out of the gates as hot as he's played the last few weeks. He missed a week. So just in terms of this arbitrary five-week ranking, I have him at four. But I think he's probably the likely MVP of this defense. Five, I couldn't leave off my man Drake Jackson. And I know he's raw, and I know he's missed opportunities and left plays in the backfield. But as a true freshman, leads this team with five-and-a-half tackles for loss, three sacks, uh, as a few pass bat downs at the line, I just think he's really delivered on the hype. And then I, I had Elijah Vera Tucker on the list, so I, I'm really impressed that you named him because I had him on there initially. And even though I took him off, I had to give him the honorable mention treatment because the line overall has been improved, and it deserves some recognition for that, especially in pass protection. The, the run blocking is up and down, and pass pro they've been good, the left side especially, and Elijah Vera Tucker – has been lights out according to the Pro Football Focus advanced metrics. He's only allowed three pressures all season, no sacks, grades at the highest in run blocking and pass blocking on this team. And I, I thought that he deserved a mention on there. So I, so I really cheated. I, I crammed seven names into my top five. Yeah. No, and I think uh, the reason I did Marlon Tupelotu at that defensive line spot like, you really could do all four of those guys, or three especially. I think Christian Rector, him being banged up, is hurt at times. But we talk about Marlon. Yeah. Like, he's really anchoring that that that, that defense line. And uh, I, I saw Brian Kelly's quote this week where he was like, hey, this is the best USC defense that uh, I may have seen during my time at Notre Dame. And that's saying a lot. And to me, I think that has to do with the defensive line and what SC has to offer up front because – that is one area where you said, okay, over the course of the past five, six, seven years, whereas Notre Dame maybe outmanned SC, it's up front. But this year, maybe not so much the case. And to me, it's because of a guy like Marlon Tupelotu. And I also, there was a little bit of a kind of a, a human element to this. I think Jay Tufele probably gets more headlines right now, causing more like may, may, may pressures and whatnot. And, and uh, I guess I don't really necessarily know why he's getting more headlines, but I feel like people kind of forget the impact Marlon has. And I also think like in the off season, a bunch of, or there was some, some talk back and forth, whether it was going to be Marlon or was it going to be Brandon Peely that was going to kind of take that edge. And I think people that were at practice knew it was going to be Marlon, but that was still a conversation at points in time. And so the fact that Marlon's like clear cut the dude setting the anchor uh, for, for that defense up front and uh, really protecting a middle linebacker core that Johnny that that's solid, but they're thin. And man, they need to rely on a good nose tackle. So that's kind of why I had Marlon up that high. Yeah, well, well let's start there. I know we're kind of go out of, out of order here, but that's a good place to start. The reason Jay Tufeli gets more headlines, and this is 
just common of everything we do in in society and sports is he was the established brand name. He was the preseason All Pac-12 uh, guy, and therefore you just kind of uh, give him that reputation, and and you work from there. Whereas a guy like Marlon uh, is is earning that reputation, and you know we we've talked about how much Graham Harrell loves Keaton Slovis. Well, Chad K, Coach K, on the defensive line loves Marlon Tuipulotu. That's his guy. I mean, he'll even tell you, he'll go, Jay Tafelli is great, he's awesome, but, but Marlin is the consistent motor. He's every the anchor. Play you know what yep. Every play you know what you're getting. There's no plays off. There's no practice off. He's the, he's the consistent steady force. And, you know, that position across football is often unglamorous, doesn't always get represented in the stat sheet. So I think the fact that he has – 24 tackles, three tackles for loss, a sack, two pass breakups, a forced fumble, really says a lot. Because a lot of times, and, and, and you know this better than I do, I, this is just me as a, as a football fan watching, a lot of times that position is, is about commanding blocks and taking up space and, and freeing the linebackers to make those plays, not necessarily always making them yourself. Yet he's done both. Totally. And sitting at uh, fifth most tackles on the team, you, you alluded to it right there, is – a defensive tackle, a lot of the time, their their job is to take up the double-team block. So a guy like John Houston or so a guy like EA can come in there and make the tackle. So the fact that he's fifth most on this team in tackles is saying that he is producing at a high level. And as the weeks go on, teams are going to try to double him more and more. It's probably already happening. That's the beauty of having a guy like J2 Philly next to you and having a, a guy like Dre, Jack, Drake Jackson next to you is that's harder to do. But if he keeps up that production uh, – those double teams are uh, are definitely going to uh, come more uh, more often for sure. I forget what week it was. I was talking to to Coach K about them, and I said, "Is, is there one play that really just you know um, encaptures his value?" It was either the BYU game or the Stanford game, and it, whatever team it was ran a stack against him and he he got off the first guy quick and got off the second guy but but his eyes never got distracted he knew right where he was trying to go and ends up still being the one to get in the backfield and make a play um yeah it's it, it, he's been really impressive you know a lot of times with those positions with o-line with, with d-line it's really hard to make a firm determination in practice and so i really trust the coaches and I kind of just buy into what they're saying. Oh, oh, this guy's getting a lot of hype. This guy's playing really well, um, especially the interior positions, that, that is. And and he was that guy who was getting the hype back in the spring. And remember, you know, Chad Kay is is new to this program, so he came in with a fresh evaluation and just immediately latched on to Marlin and has been touting him ever since. And, and when I go back and watch the games, you know, after the fact and you know replay each play and look at it closely that's where he really pops off to me but I couldn't leave J2 Felly off and I just think the fact that those two guys might be two of their best players overall and they're and they're right there in the trenches together next to each other and really suffocating that middle I, I think that's that to me is the biggest strength of this defense is having those two guys in tandem you cheated. You only had five names. You got a sixth in there. Um, but no. I make the rules here, Max. I make the rules. No, but Chad K sticking with both, both those guys, a tough last name, sticking together. Um, but no, Mar- Marlon's <laughs> been a beast. But yeah, to, to move on to the next name, I mean, Elijah Tucker. he's a guy that uh, 
I'm reading those same PFF stats and then watching the same film where it's kind of like that left side is really locked into the offensive line. And I think as we go into other areas, or the, the, the next phase of this conversation is where we want to see improvement. And we'll talk about the offensive line, I'm sure. But one guy that's been locked in is Elijah Vera Tucker. And I think I think we're seeing why people were so hyped on him, why people are still hyped on him. And uh, I think as a whole, that offensive line, you'd love to see more in the run game. But I mean, his stats, you talked about him, um, zero sacks, only a few pressures. He's rated as the second uh, the second highest uh, offensive guard in the Pac-12. I mean, that spot, it's not glamorous. It's the left guard, don't get me wrong. But the fact that um, you're walking in there every day and, and Tim Drevno does no worries about that one spot, that's a big advantage for this team. Yeah, and for those that follow along with the site, every week we do the Pro Football Focus Report and and kind of mine through their data and their grades and you know I, I don't think all of it is 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 bible but it's it's definitely a really interesting and informed look and pretty much the way their scale works if you're in the upper 70s or 80s you're doing really well if you're in the upper 80s that's elite you almost never seen grades in the 90s Elijah Vera Tucker's an 83.5 in run blocking or in pass blocking I'm sorry and a 78.2 in run blocking so he's he's way up there in both those categories and I, I know it's 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 hard to to um, connect with that scale if you're not seeing it all the time but, but just trust me those are really good numbers up there we let's go back let's work off your list though I, I want to go back to to Talanoa he was your number one just kind of give me the case for him as to as to why you think he is the, the top guy through five games. Yeah, I mean, I think he is a top guy. I rattled him off in no particular order, but yeah, Talanoa is probably the, the top. Oh, okay, I I I got you. I got you. But no, uh, if I had to rank him, Talanoa probably is one. And I think, I think we saw it to an element last game. I mean, um, you had uh, Chase Williams f- fill in that hole and misses that run block and that get, or r- misses that tackle on uh, on UW's running back uh, Ahmed, and then it, he he breaks for a long one like me. That was the difference of the game and. I think uh, one thing, I mean, having played, not defensively, obviously, but having played in the same system as Clancy, I kind of have a grasp for what he does. And the fact that Clancy is moving Talano around so much, it reminds me of Sua Cravens, but even more so to an extent. Kind of, he's at safety, he's he's moving down to the line, he's playing like nickel linebacker, he's at the... The, he's the point man when defending bunch formations. Like they are putting a lot on his shoulders, which which shows how much trust they have in him, which shows his skill level, but then it also shows the impact he has for this team. So I've been super impressed with Tal Noah. I think a lot of the the kind of my rankings of the top five guys and the bottom five guys, a lot of it is kind of like, all right, where do we where do we kind of think they were going to be preseason and kind of where are they at now? And Tal Noah is a guy that we knew was going to be good. And we expected big things, and I think we've got that and some. And so, future's bright. Hopefully, you can get back on the field and stay healthy. But fifteen's uh, been a strong point for sure. It, it's amazing the things you you take for granted sometimes, like tackling, and it became such a narrative and storyline and talking point and and fulcrum of criticism for this team about just the the missed tackles across the board. I mean, they had 20 missed tackles against Utah. That wasn't a win. They trimmed it to seven against Washington, but still, it's been a problem. And yet, that guy is just like, I keep writing it. I I don't know how else to explain it. He's just textbook. Like, if if you're showing an instructional video on how to tackle, you just pull up his game clips from any game, and and you, you see the difference. Like, you see what he's doing versus what... Isaiah Polamau's not doing, and it's just clear as day. 
and and you wonder like these guys sit in the film room after every game and 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 they're all seeing this they're seeing the coaches praise his tackling they're seeing them show why others miss tackles I, I don't know why everyone else why it's that hard to master the technique but he has certainly mastered it it's it's fun to go back and watch him in slow motion and 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 replay and just see how his how his eyes work and how he just knows to position himself and how he's just always angled or positioned right for the hit. Yeah, and to add on to that, he is uh, those same grades we're talking about. He's he leads the entire Pac-12 conference in in like tackling grade graded out by PFF. So you're talking about he's not missing tackles, and if he is, man, he's making it tough. He's making it tough on the offense or offensive guys. So um, yeah, the the. The visuals uh, in terms of watching the film back it, the stats back it, but uh, Talno is a stud. And, and we'll get official confirmation after practice Tuesday, but, I mean, he, he was back practicing last week. He was really vague about his status when we talked to him on Wednesday. Like, we asked him if there was a game this week, would you play? And he goes, that's not for me to answer. It's for the coaches. So, I mean, we're assuming, obviously, he missed the Washington game with a concussion and a sprained AC joint in his shoulder. We're, we're assuming he's going to be good to go. But we'll get official word Tuesday, and we'll have all the latest injury notes on Trojansports.com right after practice. So we're kind of bouncing around here on this list, but that, that's fine. I mean, I, I think a lot of these spots are interchangeable. I had a hard time actually ranking them. I was pretty confident on the guys. Um, so I think you played it right. But let's talk about Elijah Griffin. And, again, you talk about expectations. Not a surprise that he's been their best corner like that emerged pretty clearly in preseason camp that he that he was the one sure thing and we were kind of waiting to see who would win the other spot and that competition is still going and we can talk more about that uh later but you know it's they're gonna have all three of their corners healthy griffin chris Steele, isaac taylor stewart for the first time in weeks and we'll see how they divide it but elijah griffin's been the best guy and his his uh, advanced stats his pff stats Five catches allowed on 16 targets for 80 yards across four games. So he's averaging one and a quarter catches for 20 yards a game given up. I mean, that's smothering. What do you like most about what you've seen from him so far? Yeah, I just have been impressed with, like you talked about, I mean, the preseason narrative was that, I mean, the cornerbacks and the offensive line were going to be the big question marks. And as a group, the corners, I've had zero issue with their performance all year. I feel like even if maybe a BYU receiver made a play, they're still right there. They're still in position. And I remember like talking preseason, and the worry was that, I mean, even Greg Burns would talk about it. Like they're young, there's going to be some, some, some breakups, or there's going to be some, some mishaps, and you might have a receiver kind of run free just because there's a lot of communication going on. That's, that's the problem with like starting young corners, and we really haven't seen that. Maybe a few plays, but not a ton. And and to me, uh, I mean, Ryan, you're at practice every day, so or especially like kind of back into spring ball and fall camp, so you had a better grasp of it. But but for me, kind of kind of reading articles and kind of ha- and trying to keep a pulse on the team, kind of preseason, like I was coming at it where it was like a four man race, and you had Greg Johnson, you had Elijah, you had ITS, you had Chris Steele, and you kind of always maybe or the the, the media kind of always gave the nod to Elijah. But as a, as a third-party reader, it wasn't necessarily clear-cut until, hey, Fresno State, they roll the ball out, and it's like, all right, number two's out there. What are we going to get? And I've been super impressed. I think um, 
He's been doing a bunch, whether it's kind of press bail, whether it's in your face, whether it's defending kind of the run and and sticking up there, whether it's defending a Colby Parkinson as a big tight end, or if it's defending like a a, a speedier – like Washington receiver uh, Andre Bocelli out, outside. I think I've been impressed with kind of, um, or I guess he he missed that game, but the, the 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 vast array of bodies he's getting, the different looks he's getting. Um, I've been impressed with with uh, with what he's brought to the table and kind of looking forward. I mean, that was a or that the corners are a young group, but looking ahead, I mean, the future is super bright. When you talk about, I mean, freshman and sophomore could be there for a little while. That could be a really strong group uh, here moving forward for SC both the back half of this year and uh, moving into the future. Well, there's always a debate with people who follow college football closely about how much stock to put in the recruiting rankings. Well, maybe this is a good endorsement for that because all three of those guys, Griffin, Taylor, Stewart, Chris Steele were five-star prospects. And so maybe it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise that they're acclimating quickly, um, acquitting themselves quickly to, to really their first expanded test of college football. With Elijah in particular, I, the only concern there would have been in the preseason was that is he going to be too opportunistic? Is he going to take too many chances going for the big play? Because that's kind of how he separated early in camp was he was just making big play after big play. Like, like we would be in the media room after practice and having to like uh, collaborate and go, so how many picks is that so far for Elijah now? And <laughs> going back through our, through our notes, is it four? Is it five? Um but but he's he's been really disciplined, and my biggest pet peeve watching football, but especially college football, the, the thing that drives me the craziest, and 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 maybe um, I just don't have an informed enough knowledge on how, how the position's taught or technique, but when cornerbacks run down the field, don't ever turn around and just instinctively get their hands all over the receiver and foul and hope they don't get called for it. And it just drives me mad. And we've seen that he uh, – I think what separates the good ones is the ones that have the awareness and, and know when to look back for the ball, know when to, to, to go for the play and not just be in position. And we've seen that from him so far. And, and the best game, you mentioned it, was against Stanford, against against their big tight end Parkinson, where, as he told us, he wasn't even supposed to be on the field. They are supposed to have a, a bigger package – near the goal line, but they couldn't get him off. And he has two pass breakups against this much larger tight end just because he, he had the presence of, of spacing and, and knowing how to position himself. So that's what impresses me so much about him is not just the advanced data, but how he does it. And, and that really stands out so far. You know, go ahead. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no, I was just going to say uh, right with you there and, now it's time to get onto the the the, the juicy uh, the juicy side of it the the five that we uh, need improvements from. Yes, yes. Well, let me make one more note on Drake Jackson. I know I kind of touched yep, on, on yep. the top, but again, this is this is in a similar vein. This is the instincts awareness. So obviously, he's going to be a great pass rusher in time. We've seen it. He probably should have more sacks and more tackles for loss than he does, and he still leads the team as a true freshman. But what I like is he knows when to abandon his pass rush and get his hands up in the air and make a play that way. And it's just – I think it's something a lot of guys – I think I think it's instinctual. I think 
you know, because you're in the heat of the moment. It's hard to be thinking, okay, if I see this, I get my hand. He just knows. He goes, okay, I'm not going to get there. Hands are going up. Boom. Pass batted down. So I, I just think he, he's a really mature player beyond his years. And we by far have not seen the best of Drake Jackson yet. It's just the tip of the iceberg so far. Okay. Yes. The juicy stuff is the other list. And uh, I think there's a lot of strong opinions. I think some of the names won't be surprises. But again, I will let you go first, and we'll see how spot on we are. Okay. All right, sounds good. In no particular order, um, I guess, hey, do you want them ranked? I can rank them on the spot right here. You want them ranked? If you, if you, if you think you got it, yeah. All right. All right. That's an extra layer to it. Cool. I'll go number one, and this is semi-cheating, so I got on you for cheating. I'll semi-cheat, but I'll say the right side of the offensive line is number one. I'll go number two, uh, Josh Follow. Number three, uh, Isaiah Palomau. Number four, Ben Griffiths. And number five, Valus Jones. Interesting. I like it. I like it. We have some overlap. We have some difference. What, what you got? Off and, and then we'll figure out the best way to dissect this. My number one is Isaiah Palomau and... I, We'll get into more of it afterward, but he's number one for me. Number two, I also cheated, surprise, surprise, the right side of the line, Drew Richmond and Jalen McKenzie, number two. Number three for me is John Houston, and a part of me wonders if I'm just getting caught up in the consensus narrative and and I'm I'm extrapolating the few plays I've seen that kind of fit that narrative I, I don't know that I've, I've broken down his game to the point where I can truly dissect it, but I know he's he's probably number one on this list for fans and and has been for a while. That They think he's undersized for that position, that he's not performing to the level. And so it, it's, it's hard to get that stigma out of my head because that, that's all I hear on the message board. And then I'll see a few plays a game where I'm, I see him out of position or he's late to a play, and I don't see the plays where he's – instinctive and and reading stuff ahead of time so i i don't i don't know how fair i'm being there that's my number three number four for me and this is um how to get clever here it's the running backs and the overall stats are gonna debunk anything i'm saying because after that last game they're all impressive steven carr's up to 6.1 yards of carry uh buys that i workman like 4.9 they had a season high 212 yards but that to me was an outlier because how many times have we seen when they've needed to rush the ball and it just hasn't been there consistently enough? And I, so that group, however they divide it, whether it involves a little marquee step, whether it doesn't, I don't know. But I think they, they need a more consistent rushing attack going forward. I put it on all those guys collectively. And number five, we overlap again. Mr. Australia, Ben Griffiths himself. A guy that I have to uh, acknowledge I was uh, one of the chief uh, hypesters for. I was definitely pumping pumping the uh, the hype on uh, on him in the spring and summer, and it hasn't been there yet. So some interesting names. Let's, let's go over the ones we agree on, and let's start your number one, the right side of the line. Yeah, so for me on that one, um, and it's funny you brought up the running backs because I was kind of thumbing around with that too because it's – all those guys have played well, like they've played good, but I think when you talk about like, all right, those are some studs back there. Could they even take it up another step? I, I kind of was was thinking the same way you were, so it's funny that uh, 
you were kind of thinking that, but I, I still put it on the offensive line. And to me, it's kind of tough because for some of these rankings um, it, with these guys, for a lot of me, it was, okay, what's the expectation? What was the expectation going into week one? And then now at week six or whatever we're at, like kind of where are things at? And so that, that was kind of like, for me, that's why I don't have John Houston in here because I kind of, John Houston's played a lot of ball. He was he played ball when I was there in 2016, and we're we're in 2019 now. So it was kind of like a to me, you kind of knew what you were getting with John Houston. So I kind of like sure. that's kind of where my head was at, and why he did not make my list. But uh, the right side offensive line, there's a little bit of that, right? You kind of knew that was going to be the struggle point um, a little bit. But I think you talk about a guy like Brett Nealon, and I, I count I'm counting Nealon in this because I don't know I'll I'll round round him to the right. Um, but Brett Nealon. Um, you kind of focus on that BYU game. That was tough, especially for a guy that kind of was that rock-solid rock guy in, uh, in the offensive line. For him to get beat up against a guy who hadn't had tons of success against these other teams that are playing, that BYU nose tackle, good player, but I, I thought he really kind of changed the game, so that was disappointing. And then Jalen McKenzie uh, expected big things. I think those guys, uh, McKenzie and Richmond, like they're fine, right? I don't think it's anything like, oh my gosh, we can't operate. But I'd, sure, I, yeah. I, I wish they had taken the next step, and, and maybe it's a little bit, hey, I'll put them at number one to challenge them. And uh, if they have family members or whatever listening to this, count this as a as a challenge to to figure it out in the second half and kind of for Drew Richmond go out with a bang in his college career, and then for Jalen McKenzie get on the right track for uh, for moving forward. But I think. Uh, you you mentioned running backs. I mentioned offensive line. Uh, I mean, you mentioned offensive line too. But they all need to kind of take that next step. They're not playing bad, I don't think, but they really need to dominate. You get in those favorable boxes, and the, you're getting four and a half, five guys in a box. You're as an offensive line, you should be licking your chops, and they should be dominating way more than they actually are. Yep, no, we're kind of hitting at the same issue from different angles there, and um, you know, I I was really impressed with the entirety of the line at the start of the season. When I went back and watched that Fresno State game, I was like, man, Drew Richmond's better than, than I was told he was going to be from the Tennessee folks I talked to. And it's just kind of it's just kind of um, winnowed over these last few weeks. Now, I will say that I still think that having Drew Richmond in this program is an asset because I don't have much trust at all in their overall offensive line Without depth. a doubt. Espe- yeah. Yeah, especially with, with Andrew Voorhees out. And I'll touch on him in a second. So uh, this is not me like knocking Drew Richmond, but I'm just being objective. And and, and that side of the line has been a drop off from the other side. So I, you'd like to see improvement there. And I think you see with the coaches that that they're sending Jalen McKenzie a message by giving Liam Jimmins ten snaps first Washington. He hadn't played all season. He's a defensive lineman who who made the the move to the offensive side last year and hadn't played in the game yet and gets in there for 10 snaps in the middle of the game. Uh, so I don't know if that's a message or if, if it was a, a true audition for Liam Jimmins, but it, it should be taken as a message by Jalen McKenzie. So that's, I can definitely improve a little bit on, on Andrew Voorhees real fast. We're going to find out this week what's going to happen with him. He's, he's played the first two games has missed the last three with a, um, unspecified foot injury and the way that clay helton was hinting at it last week it was that they were going to make a decision on him like like a red shirt decision possibly yep where he, he hasn't red shirted yet you know he, he's a he's an older guy but he hasn't used a red shirt 
And if he's going to be out for a little bit longer, is it is it worth blowing half a season when you can have a veteran offensive lineman for an extra year? I, as much as that they need the depth and bodies there, I think I would probably support that decision to redshirt him. Now, you don't have to come out and declare that. Like, if guys get hurt, you can reverse course and play him later on and just – reverse the decision like it's, it's not you're not signing paperwork right now saying and he's in a red shirt you just gotta keep him under the four game limit so we'll see what happens there um let's go to isaiah polamau I'll, I'll, I'll let you start and i'll uh, i'll tack on afterward cool yeah for me this this gets in isaiah is the perfect guy for kind of all right what was the expectation and what do we get and to me walking into this season uh, Talano Hufunga and Isaiah, like, I was expecting similar things. And maybe that uh, wasn't the best judgment, but I was expecting kind of, okay, they're both going to take that next big step. And you see it out of Talano, and you haven't necessarily seen that out of, out of Isaiah. It's, it's a similar point to you and kind of the Drew Richmond point. I still view Isaiah as a great asset for this team. I think he's going to be a main stage at that safety spot. But I would love to see more. I would love to see bigger range. I'd love to see him be better in, in the run game. To me, when I break down this film, there is a clear-cut strong safety and free safety. And in other words, what that means, there's a clear-cut difference between one guy in run support and one and the other guy in the run support. So it's not necessarily a good thing if you're Isaiah Palomaro. So I would love to see him kind of be more physical in the run game, uh, have a bigger impact there. His numbers are, are solid. I mean, he's up there in tackles, but... Uh, to me, this is definitely more of a, of a challenge, and I'd love for him to kind of, okay, this back half of of this season, can he take the next step to really be a force? Because th- th- this SC team needs it, especially if Tal Noah's banged up. They need that other safety to really step up big, and so this back half of the year, I'd expect big things for Isaiah Palmau, and he's got all the talent in the world. It's just a matter of, uh, I think, piecing it together. So the thing with Palmau, and this is, goes back to what I said earlier about trusting coaches, trusting what you hear, and maybe not trusting your eyes enough. We just kind of like labeled this guy as a stabilizer for this young secondary and just assumed that he was going to be this veteran presence. And it really was not based on a ton because he only played one full game last year. He got hurt early in the second game and was out for the rest of the season. So we had a minuscule sample size from which to project – and he didn't really do much at all in the spring because he was still rehabbing the shoulder or they were just being careful with it. And we just kind of kept lumping together, oh, Hufanga and Pola Mao. Yeah, it's going to be the strength of yeah. the back of the defense and they're going to lock it down. And I'll have to keep that in mind in the future just to, to not get carried away in, in opinions that really aren't grounded in a lot of visual evidence. And And so for me... I don't know. I mean, he has one of the plays of the season. That interception in the end zone against Fresno State saved that game. That's huge. All the credit on that one. But he hasn't been good in coverage or in rush defense. According to PFF, he's allowed 10 receptions on 12 targets for 135 yards. And we, I don't even need to see stats to just tell you the tackling hasn't been there. He, uh, Unlike Hufanga, his, his safety mate, he, t- he goes in high, he gets dragged for extra yards, and it's just consistently a problem. Now, this is a pretty harsh critique. I don't mean it to be harsh. I'm just, again, trying to be objective. I think it's a major problem for this defense, and part of the problem is that there's no one to push him. Like, Chase Williams has 
been just as up and down as Polo Mao has. And he's really the only other safety that they've shown any trust in playing. We've seen C.J. Pollard for a handful of snaps this year. They haven't tested out the freshman like Britton Allen at all. So he's not being pushed. And, you know, I asked both Greg Burns and Clancy Pendergast about Isaiah's struggles last week, and they were very defensive about it. And just, oh, I wouldn't say he's struggling. He's got things to work on. I'm like, all right, well, it's all the same thing. But if this USC defense is going to be a more consistent group and limit the big plays and be better tackling, I think it, a lot of it starts with him raising his game. And I'm not going to say he can't do it. I'm just saying I think it has to happen. No doubt. Yeah, I, uh, I'm right there with you. I think um, I love your point about how you opened that work kind of the the whole off season you kind of the narrative kind of grouped both those guys together in Talanoa and Isaiah but then you kind of take a step back and you're like wait a sec what's that actually based off of what's that actually rooted out of and it's sim- it's based off of they they both kind of had a similar trajectory uh last year kind of 2018 but one maybe been been ahead of the other kind of thing and uh no I love how you opened that and uh I'm right with you I think talent's there just a matter of piecing it together so let's get the two guys on your list that I didn't have, and and they're to me they're kind of in the same yep. boat. Josh Follow and Valus Jones haven't really had an opportunity. I think Follow has two catches. Jones may have one this season. They just haven't been used. And, and Josh Follow is going to be out for a little bit with a sprained MCL, but it didn't sound like it was a serious serious injury. So let's. I, I want to hear your your viewpoint on both of those guys yeah i'm glad you introed it like that too because i do view them similarly and in that all my like preseason podcasts i was doing i'd always say like i'm intrigued who that fourth pass catcher is going to be whether it's going to be a tight end body in josh follow or is it going to be valus jones and to be honest i thought valus was going to do some big things i I mean you talk about i thought he complimented the other receivers really well i mean you literally talk about you have the big guy, Michael Pittman. You have the the savvy, smooth guy in Tyler Vaughns. You have the premier slot in uh, Amon Ross St. Brown. I thought you were going to have kind of the the fly sweep, the home run hitter, kind of the, the the guy you sleep on, Valus Jones. Kind of the he has two catches a game for one for a fifty yard touchdown type guy. I thought that was going to be kind of his role, and we've seen him in the. Uh, in the return game, but outside of that, not really anything. And I think uh, it's it's been a guy like like Drake London that's kind of got reps over him, which to me that kind of goes twofold in everything we heard in the in the preseason where they're going to rotate eight receivers in and all that stuff. That was just a bunch of baloney. That just has not happened. Um, which, to be honest, I thought that was going to be the case. Like, why would you why would you take out the big three receivers? Like, they're not gassed. Like, they're they're, they're they'll be just fine. And it, that's how it's played out. But that whole, oh, they're going to be playing eight receivers, like that was never a thing. And I think as a result, a guy like Bayless Jones or a guy like Josh Follow has, has, has paid the price for that. And I think the other element you, you, you kind of said was these guys hadn't got an opportunity. And while that's true, I've, I've been on that practice field. I've been in that program. A lot of those guys, I mean, your opportunity comes in practice. And it sounds kind of kind of sure. cliche and whatnot, but a lot of that – um, I think is kind of what they're showing in practice. And that's more so towards Josh Follow um, because the plays he's in there, he does not block well. And for he has a tie, he is labeled a tight end, and he does not block well. That is a huge issue. And that's a reason a guy like Eric Cromanoke's getting a ton of reps over him. And the counter to that could be, well, Max, I mean, he's not a blocking tight end. That's not who he is. 
that's fair, but they also haven't found a role for him in the passing game. And these coaches know what they're doing. They know the weapon that Josh is. And so the fact that he hasn't found his mold, I do kind of put that a little bit on him in terms of kind of you're not getting it done in the blocking game. You haven't necessarily been elite in the passing game. Oh, but Max, he hasn't got his opportunity. To me, there's a little bit, they're kind of intertwined. It's kind of, I mean, you got to get, you got to do the dirty work to kind of get the, the, the flashy love. There's an element of that. So I think all of that's kind of bunched in, in together. And before the season, I thought one of those guys for sure was going to gonna boom as that fourth pass catcher. And they, they both have got uh, very little play time. And um, especially for, for Josh, when he's been in there, because uh, he's got more of, of, of an opportunity than I would say Valus has, I, uh, I haven't been overly impressed, to be honest. Yeah, and, and he's a guy that, that I definitely bought stock in going back to last year, and I've just refused to sell it. And my uh, my advisor's like, dude, that stock, you got you to gotta, you gotta dump it. I'm like, nope, I'm holding on, I'm yeah. holding on. He's this, this massive frame, and, and we've seen him make a few flash plays over the last year. But and, you're right, I mean, he's a junior. Yeah, and both, and both and, those guys, you talk about – Valus and Josh follow the second that a Graham Harrell or originally it was Cliff Kingsbury you talk about guys that should have been stoked like oh this is it it's those two guys I thought they would I thought they would find a uh, find a uh, a role in this offense and it just hasn't happened and sorry I cut you off <laughs> no no I see you got strong opinions yeah. you gotta bring them <laughs> bring them while they're hot uh, on 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 Valus uh he's one that I didn't have stock on before this preseason, but I bought in because he was making so many plays on the practice field. And I always kind of questioned him as a, as a downfield target. I didn't trust his hands. I'd seen too many uh, plays just not finished. But they were, they were getting him in stride across the middle where he's catching it and just going. And the defense couldn't stop him. And, and you're turning eight, ten-yard passes into 60-yard gains. I'm like, man, that's going to be an awesome play in this offense. And he's perfect for it. We haven't seen it at all, and I know he's frustrated. I mean, he tweeted out a couple weeks ago that he knows his worth, and obviously he was going to transfer and came back, so I'm sure he's frustrated. But it's telling that they haven't found a place for him in this offense. So Yeah, what, good one, one last point on that one, too. And I, I know Velas, I was a teammate of his, great guy, I love the guy. And so I, I feel bad being harsh, but there, I, 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 like there, the, the whole transfer thing you brought up, that's a part of this, too, the fact that he came back. Which then that my heart feels for him because I mean there's a lot of teams in the country that would use a Bayless Jones skill set and SC's using him in the return game sure and I think he's about to uh, he's about to break one of the return records whether it's just sheer amount of USC returns or something like that but over the course of my time at SC I was there for four years this is something you see in that as USC receivers get older um, and they haven't necessarily done anything as a younger guy it at times it becomes harder to kind of get traction later on in your career and i'm sure uh i'm sure i mean i I, i'd get pushback on that but you go down the list i mean a guy that that's kind of coming to my head is like a george farmer who he was a great receiver his time at sc and yes he was injured i know that but you get you get to be a later receiver then you get those flashy young receivers and you're you're intrigued about the ceiling that those guys can do especially a guy like drake london the basketball player big guy i mean you're never going to go wrong playing him, but that is one position at SC where I think as you get older and it becomes kind of, hey, do we play the play the, the the guy that's been here, the Vales Jones, or do we we put all our all our coins in kind of the higher ceiling uh, Drake London guy? And 
Not saying it's a poor decision going for Drake London, but that dynamic, uh, I feel like it's not the first time we've seen this, and uh, I don't think it'll be the last either. That's a really interesting point, and and I'm going to kind of hijack it and ask you a question here. And I I don't know what kind of answer you'll have, but, you know, there's a perception. I don't know if it has any truth at all, but I'll hear it from parents of players occasionally. I'll, I'll hear it from, obviously, critics of the program that there's politics involved and, and who's playing, who's not playing. As a, When you were a player, how aware, how aware are you guys of that stuff and, and do you ever think that yourselves? Yeah, I think um, I, I hate the term politics at first, but I'm not naive to the fact that, okay, we all are human beings and when it is a truly 50-50 decision and guys are equal across the board, it is some of those outside factors that could uh, – could kind of kind of leverage things um, to me. I mean, whether you're like the, the the homegrown fancy recruit or your guy like Velas. Not saying this is the case, but these are all factors. You're or you are a guy like v- Velas who he's from Alabama, I believe. Like you're the out of state guy. You're yeah. not the the flashy homegrown recruit kind of thing. Those factors do play. Um, is it enough to kind of sway a decision? I don't think so. But I mean, I I think. The receiver position is just tricky, especially on this offense, because you have three guys. We're talking three. We're not talking just two. And most offenses don't even have one. We're talking three premier receivers. There's only one ball to go around. And then when you're playing week in and week out against these defenses that are dropping eight and forcing to run the ball, that's just a lot of mouths to feed. And do politics play? Sure, yes, but not to the point necessarily where I think guys' careers are getting uh, impacted by by uh, politics, but I think maybe a few reps here or there. Sure, I think that's just human nature. Uh, a little element, uh, a little bit of those elements come into play. But hey, to, to finish that tangent out, like I don't know that locker room. I don't know the inner workings of kind of how things are going on with sure. the new coaching staff and recruiting and all that. I just know, uh, just like all of us football fans that are listening to this, that receiver room, just like any receiver room, but especially at SC. You're going to have personality. You're going to have some ego. You're going to have some guys that want to do this and want to do that, and they're going to be like all those things, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Let me ask you this question too, and and, and by all means, no need to get specific. I, you know, I understand it's, it's a sensitive matters in the locker room, but were there ever times where guys were frustrated on behalf of other guys and just feeling like someone was, was not getting their chance? And, and, and this is not about – USC or Clay Helton's program. I'm just thinking this goes on across the board in college football. Do you ever sense that where like everyone's like, man, that guy's getting he's getting jobbed? Very few times. Um, and as you say that, I'm trying to go through um, very very few times. I think one was uh, uh, like Buck Allen. He's a name that I think SC fans and that when they're uh, when they kind of go through this, he's a name that sticks out. But then again, if I'm Lane Kiffin and Ed Orgeron there for a little bit, like I, I get the deal. Uh, Buck Allen was dominating in practice like all of 2013, and obviously he ended up being a, a, a pro pro back, so um, that worked out. But he was he was dominating practice all all of 13, and guys like, why is he not playing? Why is he not playing? Well, you had a guy like Trey Madden, you had a guy like Justin Davis, who also are in NFL locker rooms. So if at that time, like I can see how those coaches operated, but that's one guy that sticks out in terms of like man, he really kind of took over the practice field and it took him a long time to kind of get some traction. Um, outside of that, I remember, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, 
Uh, here, give me a sec. I'm trying to go through the positions a little bit. Um, not 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 a ton. I think uh, I, I think there is an element of kind of some of the some of those big recruits. You, you you try to give them opportunities early. Um, but I think Clay Helton he preaches that when he recruits is that hey when these guys come in as freshmen we're going to give them opportunities to succeed and uh, sometimes those guys were stuck stuck in there but. By and large, politics plays a very little factor because the reality is, like, if you're Clay Helton and you're not playing a guy that's going out there and getting it done in practice, you're going to alienate your locker room because those guys see it. So, by and large, I don't think it happens that much. Good stuff. Well, and we both have Ben Griffiths. We don't have to expand upon that. Obviously, the punting has not been as uh, awe-inspiring as we thought. We got we have two more fun topics, and we're going to hit them quick. Um especially the last one I'm, I'm intrigued by. So let's real quick just hit the state of Pac-12 football. Obviously, USC controls its own destiny to the South title, to the Pac-12 championship game. They only have the one loss in the South, so they have the tiebreaker over Utah and anyone else they would play the rest of the way. So it's it's in their hands. But the Pac-12 overall, not looking very daunting. Washington, who we give a lot of respect and credit to, goes out and loses to Stanford last weekend, a Stanford team that everyone had kind of written off after previous weeks. What is your take on the state of the Pac-12? Yeah, I think um, it shows, I think, there, there's no juggernauts in the Pac-12. There's just not. There's no, um, yeah, there's no kind of power, powerhouse. But I, I, I kind of flip it on the other, other side. I think the middle of the Pac-12, you talk about kind of one through, and even Oregon State's improving, but let's say one through 10 in the Pac-12 in terms of sheer, we're rolling out 10 teams against any other conference's 10 teams. The pac 12s pretty strong in that regard. And I know right as I say that, there's going to be fans that are kind of rolling their eyes, but the reality is you go down the list and you compare it against some of these other conferences, other conferences team, and it's not sexy, but other conferences teams Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, are trash. I mean, I played in the ACC. The ACC Coastal is not good. It's just not a good conference. Like it versus even the Pac-12. Like, okay, the Pac-12 South might not be sexy, but any given day, Khalil Tate can wake up on the right side of the bed and be one of the most electrifying players in the league. Arizona State's defense is solid. You got uh, Stephen Montez who can go out there, and he's had a ton of snaps. And Lavisco Chenault might be the re- first receiver off the board. And you got USC, and you got Utah, and in the North you have, I mean, it was a kind of pick one out of the hat before the season in terms of Washington, Washington State, Oregon, and in Stanford uh, for who would win. So, I mean, I just rattled off like eight teams that can kind of get it done. So I think the criticisms are fair in that in looking at college football playoff wise, the Pac-12 is not sitting pretty. But I think you have a lot of teams that are kind of right there on the cusp that if you matched up kind of teams 6 through 10, the Pac-12 is a case for being as strong as any conference. And I know that's never going to make any article headlines. It's never going to be sexy, but it's the truth. And I think that point can't be, uh, can't be overshadowed. I, I don't disagree with you. It's uh, well said, well stated. Uh, given that, how do you feel about USC's chances to run the gauntlet or not, not the gauntlet, but, but, run out the conference or at least do enough to get in that Pac-12 title game? I just worry about people like ourselves and the noise that could happen uh, after this game. <laughs> I mean, I've been in that locker room, obviously followed the program for a while, and 
this Notre Dame team is going to be tough, and um, I, pro- I I won't pick SC to win this game. And you talk about if they – I hope they do. I really do. But you talk about if SC loses this game and they're at 3-3, three and three, a lot of these podcast listeners are going to just crank up the boo birds even more, and uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to operate in that locker room. It's going to be tough as players because you start thinking about, is our coach getting fired? What's happening? Oh, my gosh. You start pointing fingers and blaming and all that stuff, and – and sure, it's on the locker room. It's on the coaching staff. You got to get it done. But I mean, it's I mean, yeah, it's it's just hard. So I worry about that. Um, and I think towards the back end of the year, some of those teams might pick up steam. You're going to have a more veteran Jalen Dan uh, Jaden Daniels at at ASU. Who knows what happens with Cal if they pick up steam? So I think it's going to be tough. I think if it, if if you can get through this game and it was a good performance against Notre Dame. I like SC's shot, SC's uh, SC's chances, but uh, it'll be tough, no doubt, Ron. Yeah, you, you kind of teased a, a big topic there that's on everyone's mind. We're gonna save that stuff for the end of week podcast, which is gonna be our our game breakdown podcast of Notre Dame and USC. Get deep into the X's and O's with Max. We'll talk about what's at stake, the potential aftermath, all that stuff. So that'll be a a full pot on its own right. But we're going to close with an interesting topic. We've uh, we were talking about locker room politics a little bit ago. We're going to talk about actual politics and the uh, Fair Pay for Play Act, which California got the ball rolling on. Other states are going to following suit with their own similar legislature, basically trying to uh, give college athletes the rights to their names, image, and likeness, and ability to make money off those things where, as right now, obviously, the NCAA prohibits that. And if enough states get on board and apply the pressure with laws that say that no school can prevent um, a student-athlete from profiting off their image, name, or likeness, then that's going to put a lot of pressure on to force change. Max, you have a unique perspective on this because you were a student-athlete, and I'm really curious. We, we didn't talk about this pre-show, so I'm going into this fresh. I'm really curious to hear your opinion on how important you think this is. Is it, is it all good? Is, is it good and bad? And just what your reaction is to this kind of movement. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be a, a hindsight 2020 guy, but I remember there was a – a few, this was always like a popular topic to write a paper on in college when I was there. Like, oh, NCA, like pay for players, like kind of argue one way or the other. And this was, this was the case I always argued in that players should be able to, um, should be able to make money off their likeness, which for those people that don't know the actual terminology, that's different than just the school giving you a, 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 a fat check for being a student athlete. Now it's just you have you you have the ability to make money on off your name and who you are and what you bring to the table, and to me the reason that was always the the the, the best case scenario, is it gives um, guys the same opportunity both male and female. It gets the it gets over the Title IX hurdle for lack of a better term in the smoothest way. Let me kind of explain what what that would mean. I mean, uh, my girlfriend she played volleyball at SC. She had a good social media following she would go out and have the ability to run camps and do talks and monetize her social media and make money and probably make more money than a good chunk of the SC football team both male and female would have the same shot don't get me wrong male fo- or the football players and the men's basketball players would have a way bigger stage to make more money but in terms of sheer same opportunity this uh likeness uh legislation 
is the smoothest smoothest answer uh, uh, from me on that end. The second tangent I'd go on is uh, I was on SiriusXM last week, and they asked me, Max, how many players do you think uh, in that in those locker rooms will 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 make over five thousand dollars a year or five thousand dollars a year off this rule? And the guy uh, Jeff Schwartz on that podcast was saying. I think it's like you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, only the t- it's only going to affect the top 1%. And so for him, he's saying, oh, I think it's only like five players that are going to make that five grand a year. For that, I could not disagree more. Brady Quinn tweeted out the other day, it's only going to affect the top 1%. It's only going to affect the top 1%. That is 1,000% wrong. And like, think about that. You talk about top 1%, so it's just a few guys a team. Sure. When I played, you go back there. When I played, Cody Kessler's going to make money, like real money. Juju Smith's going to make real money. Nelson Aguilar's going to make real money. Maybe a Leonard Williams, that kind of thing. But you talk about other guys in that locker room, they're not just going to be sitting there thinking, oh, man, shucks. Juju's making thousands of dollars, and I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, whatever. Guys are going to get hacky with it. In, in a legal way, I'm sure there's going to be some illegal stuff, but like, let's just call it how it is. Uh, at other schools, actually, probably first because SC's on uh, SC's on lockdown since the the, the, the sanctions. But um, le- and, and legally, like I'm talking about, you're gonna have the the savvy backup lineman uh, going to the local barbecue joint and saying, "Hey, pay me hundred bucks a pop, and I'll have the whole offensive line eat here every Friday night at seven. And you you better believe fans are gonna go to that barbecue joint. Uh, you're gonna have the the cornerback uh, do birthday appearances at kids' birthdays on the weekend for like an hour for two hundred bucks a pop, like little stuff just to go in there, sign a few autographs, and then pop out. It's bigger than just shoe sales and jersey sales. You're gonna have guys get hacky with it. You're gonna have guys uh, monetize their social media, which you uh, for people that don't know what that means, it's uh, selling an Instagram story or selling an in feed post for. That's a lucrative, lucrative market because, as we all know, eyeballs are on social media. Eyeballs are on your Twitter feed. Eyeballs are on your Instagram feed. So you're going to have guys that are going to make uh, make money. And I think the two examples that uh, – if you're listening to this podcast, you're a hardcore SC fan, and so you'll recognize these two names. But there's two names that stick out to me in my playing career that would have made money, that, that would have truly – not broke the bank, but would have been real, real money. It's Connor Sullivan – who uh, was the holder when I played there and was our four-string quarterback, and Leon McQuay, who started uh, two years at safety for us. He was my recruiting class, good player, big recruit. Both those guys, Connor Sullivan was on the front end of the YouTube uh, train and would like vlog practices and whatnot. He would have made real, real money. He has literally like three million followers right now. He would have made real money on his YouTube. And Leon McQuay... um, when he was in college, he could not sell his music. He made beats. He uh, didn't rap. He just made, uh, like, yeah, just, 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 just rap beats. And uh, you better believe any SC person in the marketing industry who's a big Trojan fan, if they need a song and they got some extra money, they're going to be going to the, the, the Leon McQuay of 2020 or whatever that is. And guys are going to find different ways to make money, whether it is uh, whether it is social media, whether it is music, whether it is uh, cooking or whatever, your guys are going to find a way to get paid and you're going to have an alumni base, especially at SC, that's going to be willing to, 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 to spend and help out these student athletes in a legal way. But they're going to be, you better believe, they're going to be keeping an extra eye open, eye out uh, for, for, for to, to give these players chances. So I think it's a huge positive. I think uh, the whole only affect the 1% deal is... Is, is completely wrong, and the counter to that's going to be, well, Max, not every school is USC. 
I'm with you, but there's still going to be guys that are going to find ways to to get. I mean, you talk about if it's five thousand dollars a year, which is a good chunk of change. I mean, that's only what? That's only uh, like what five hundred bucks, a little less than five hundred bucks a month. In the grand scheme of things, there's ways guys can do that. So I think it's a positive. I think it's going to change the landscape of college football, though. I think the whole happy-go-lucky play for your school. Like, it, like your legacy is your school, like amateur, that whole definition is going to get changed and, and we're going to look at college football differently, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just different. Wow. That was, that was <laughs> yeah. great. No, like, like <laughs> you, you were ready to answer that question. And I'll be honest, I, I was probably in, in the mindset with, with the, the other opinion that, I mean, how many are actually going to benefit from this? But those are really clear examples, and that makes a lot of sense. And that now reminds me, quick anecdote, when I was covering FCS Coastal Carolina, I did a feature story on a defensive end who cut hair for the rest of the team and would make a few bucks off, off each haircut. And, yep. like, the, the school, like, or the, the PR staff helped me, like, uh, set that story up, but after it came out, they got a call from the NCAA, and they they had to like backpedal and sort through that. And I was like, "What, really?" Yeah. And and those are things you don't think about that are prohibited or or that are revenue streams that would be and, open. Yeah. That, that, that I, I hope everyone uh, was able to hear that because that that was really persuasive and. And I, I've maybe not understood the full scope of things, but, but that really put it in perspective. Let me just ask you this. Um, I know you weren't thinking of it in the time because it wasn't there, but was there ever a time where you felt you had a chance to to cash in a little bit and, and just knew, knew you couldn't? Um, I mean, I, I definitely could have made money like off the quarterback camps. I think that's one that's like kind of right in, in, in your face, right, in terms of, um, I mean, like – I can I could have coached a camp and and uh, and like made money, but the idea of like, I mean, I could have gone back to my hometown if we're just, if we're just keeping it really. Could have gone back to your hometown and said Max Brown quarterback camp and and made some money. You can't you like now you can do that or at least in a few years you can versus you can't do that. Uh, you couldn't do that back in the day. So that's that's one example, but it's it's intriguing. I can't I can't uh, I can't touch on it enough in terms of like okay, how's this actually going to play out? Like you're you're going to have guys. I mean, if we're just keeping it real, like. There's two bars on campus at at, at, at SC now. There's a, there used to be one. Now there's two. You better believe those guys are gonna be like paying football players to come to their bar, and and then and then yeah. especially right. Let, let's say it's Keen Slovis, or I don't. I mean he's like 19, whatever. Let's go, whatever. When it was Sam Darnold when he was there, like he's making legit money. And Sam's the type of dude that says, "Here, I don't need the money. I don't necessarily want the money. Or I don't want the full chunk of the money." But let me bring my let me bring my other buddies in, and you give them a couple hundred bucks a pop, kind of thing. That's going to exist, and it's that next level. And I know that's kind of like funny to talk about and whatever, but uh, that's going to be real when you talk about like real money on the line. Um, I guess real money is different, but hundreds of bucks here and there. That stuff adds up and makes a big difference for these student athletes. And over the course of a year, um, I think it can make a real difference. Yeah, there's no question. And obviously, the other side of the coin is that it facilitates a way for people to take advantage of the system. And we, we all know that there are places in college football where, where money's being handed to recruits. And I mean, I, I don't even have, it's, it's really not the top issue on, on, on my worry list if kids are making money, but you know, the NCAA is trying to protect an, 
a level playing field. And this is going to give boosters a much easier way to to make it look legitimate what they're doing. That's the other side of the coin. But you you make so many good points there. And if anyone's been on the fence or on the other side of things, I think you, if they listen to what you just said, it's hard to not see the upside and benefit for the people most directly impacted and involved. So good yeah. stuff. And good don't, stuff. Get, don't get me wrong. There's definitely like a downside to that. I mean, I just brought up like – uh, negotiating which bar you're going to as college kids. I guess that's probably not the best thing to do, <laughs> but I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be real life here, and um, I think there's definitely going to be a trickle down effect. I think there's going to be uh, I'm sure SC will probably hire a few more employees to kind of manage this and educate players on this and kind of make sure that things are going on correctly. And I'm sure there's probably going to be a position at SC that kind of finds deals for players and kind of is like the quote unquote marketing agency a little bit like this isn't this isn't just uh oh Juju Smith Schuster's uh jerseys in the bookstore he gets he gets a check and no one else does like guys are going to be hunting money and you're going to have guys that are going to get creative and uh it'll, it'll it'll be fun to watch and see kind of the, the creative the creativity that comes out of it great stuff well this is why you listen to the Trojan Thought podcast because Max brings a really unique perspective Oftentimes we're just talking X's and O's, and he's giving you his quarterback viewpoint on on what on things that you don't see just watching the game. But this is was a really eye opening uh, perspective from a former college athlete into kind of the the issue du jour uh, in college sports right now. Great podcast. Like I said, we're going to be back with the Friday podcast, going deep into the, the Notre Dame matchup, the X's and O's and everything that game means. So uh, we'll have a whole fresh slate of uh, discussion and topics for you later in the week. Max, as always, that was fun. This was fun, Ryan. Good work. See you later in the week.